Well, good morning again. My name is Pastor Milo. We're so glad to have you here with us this morning. If it's your first time with us, uh, what we like to do each week is give you an outline in your bulletin so you can kind of have a feel for where we're going and what we're doing. So if you want to get those out this morning, there's a white sheet of paper there to help you along the way. You'll be able to track along really well uh, where where we're headed today. Uh, It has been a really nice week here in Western New York, uh, really warm. Uh, We're careful not to complain about how warm it is here because we know the contrast of what happens uh, the rest of the year around here. For us as a family, maybe you as well if you've got young kids, uh, it seems like being warm on a hot summer day has something to do with going to the zoo. You can't seem to go to the zoo on a moderate day. It's just a hot, blazing hot day while you're there. Uh, We went a year ago, sometime around this time frame, just a hot day, and we were there, and, and like we're trying to get these little spray things they have all around. You try to get a little bit under here, a little bit under there, and there was this rhinoceros running. It was a baby rhinoceros, but it was enormous, but nonetheless, running along the fence, clearly hot and annoyed and bothered, but for whatever reason, uh, my kids would run along the fence line and waving to it, and this thing would race along the fence with the kids, and all the kids, our kids, other people's kids were running along the fence back and forth with this baby rhino. Like, when do you get an opportunity to do that? Have any of you ever got to run with a baby rhino? No. It was a pretty cool experience. Uh, when we were in South Carolina, we lived there for about 10 years, almost 10 years ago now. Uh, but they had a uh, really small zoo, but it was right kind of in the heart of the city and a lot of the activities that were going on in the city. And you could hear the animals uh, at the zoo if you're just out in the park and uh, out in like the, the main gathering center there. And one of the animals that was born there at the zoo that made all kinds of publicity was there was this new baby giraffe being born in the zoo. And, and we could watch it on the you know, baby giraffe cam, you know, and you just watched and like day after day and there's nothing to watch. There's just mama walking back and forth in a stall. But, you know, when, when the moment happened, I mean, it was pretty cool. It was pretty riveting to be able to watch all of that. So I was thinking about that in my sermon prep this morning, and I found this article about a baby giraffe being born that I think uh, is very interesting. So let me read this to you. There's something curious about the birth of a giraffe. Gary Richmond happened to be at the zoo at just the right moment to witness this strange and amazing interaction between a mother and a newborn giraffe. He was standing next to the animal keeper, a man named Jack Badal, with lots of questions. There was the mother giraffe standing while giving birth. The calves' hooves were already visible. When is she going to lie down, Gary asked. She won't, the zookeeper answered, but that's a ten-foot drop to the ground, he said. Is there anyone going to catch the calf? He said, try catching it if you want, you responded, but its mom has enough strength in her hind legs to kick your head off. So the calf hurled forth. It landed hard on its back. The infant giraffe laid where it fell, almost motionless. No more than a minute passed, and something totally shocking happened. The mother kicks her baby. She booted her own little one hard enough to send it sprawling, head over hooves. Why did she do that, Gary asked. Well, she wants it to get up, said the zookeeper. Somehow, the newborn giraffe knew what his mother wanted and haltingly struggled to rise. After a few feeble tries, it gave up, sinking back to the ground. Boom! A second hearty kick from the mother rolled the young one over several more times. The calf again tries to prop itself up on its God-given stilts and finally managed an upright stance. 
Gary Richmond marveled at what he was beholding, charmed by the sight of this fledging little giraffe. But then suddenly, unexpectedly, something that took Gary's breath away. Almost as soon as the calf stood up at its upright perch, the mother, boom, kicked it off its feet again. This time the zookeeper, Jack Bedall, didn't wait for the question. He simply explained, she wants it to remember how it got up, Jack explained. If they were in the wild and it didn't quickly follow the herd, predators would pick it off. I think there's something I have in common maybe this morning that you have in common as well. I, have you been kicked off of your feet before? Have you been knocked down before? Have you been kicked while you were down? Uh, have you been kicked by the very ones uh, who are supposed to love you and care for you and nourish you? Mama Giraffe is not very kind and loving and nourishing at this moment. So as we look into this sermon series, how we respond in these moments, being kicked while you're down, it, it tells us the truth about what we really believe or, or the way that we're going to live our lives. And what it's really going to tell us the truth of what we believe is about God and how we understand that uh, context will profoundly affect both our inner view and our outer view of the world around us. We are in this sermon series that we're calling the True Colors, Life of Joseph sermon series. Uh, last week uh, we talked about the title was Truly Loved, Deeply Hated, when we talk about uh, the person Joseph. And so today's sermon title is talking about rejection and betrayal, taking a swift kick sometimes and what it's going to look like to respond to that. We shouldn't be confused here. Uh, if you're not familiar with this section of Scripture, I, I encourage you to read it. Uh, Genesis 37 is where we are today, so you want to make your way there, Genesis chapter 37. But make no mistake about it, uh, this storyline will carry us to Egypt. We will be going to Egypt in the most unpleasant of ways. And in Egypt, the most awful of things will happen. But as you make your way to Genesis chapter 37, let's pause for a moment at Genesis chapter 15 because it is no accident that we are headed to Egypt. If you look at Genesis chapter 15, when God made his covenant with Abram, who later has the name Abraham, we get this as part of the covenant that I believe most of us miss when we think about the Abrahamic covenant. But look at chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him this, know for certain your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated for four hundred years. But I will punish the nation that serves, that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Where Abram is, this land of Canaan, uh, don't miss as well. There will be a 400 years for them to have the opportunity to correct themselves before a holy God. We are going to be traveling to Egypt, not because it's a mistake, not because there wasn't a plan for it, but because this was literally what God had told Abram from the beginning when he made the covenant with Abram. He said, your people will be taken away. And this is how we find out about it and learn about it in the life of Joseph. Now make your way over, if you will, to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. Last time we were together, we talked about how Joseph 
occupies some uh, large amount of real estate, some prominent real estate in the book of Genesis. Genesis is a large book. We learn about the origins of things. We learn about how the Holy Spirit allots one-fourth of the book of Genesis to the story and the life of Joseph. Compare that with literally 10 words about how God created all of the heavens and the earth. 10 words, and yet we get a fourth of the book of Genesis all given to the life of Joseph. So we are going to find out as much as you possibly can find out about a person, it would seem, here by reading through chapters 37 through the end of the book of Genesis. So that's where we are. If you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that Joseph comes from what we call today a very dysfunctional family. Joseph is coming from a very dysfunctional family. Put it into context. Think about it here for a moment. If you have 12 brothers and so you're all living in one house, there are four mothers, stepmothers living in one house, and they're all fighting back and forth with each other for uh, priority. And in the middle of all of that, there's one brother that has uncharacteristically been selected as the chosen one, the favorite one by his father, Jacob, who we call Israel. And so he is put on this high pedestal. He is getting all the focus of attention. And so what you have is this really, really ugly environment. So to recap very quickly for you, last week we're going to use this as your first fill-in because I think it connects to us pretty well today. Your first fill-in today, take out that white sheet of paper, it's the first fill-in for you today. It's this, turning green with envy. Turning green with envy. When you get sick, when you get ill, if you uh, have have uh, about to pass out, you turn whitish or green, you don't look very healthy. They say that you look green. Uh, green with envy is what we're talking about here this morning. The Greeks actually thought that when you were sick or that, that if you had this envy building up inside, you could actually pigment your skin a color of green. Chapter 37, beginning in verse 2. Again, let's read this Again, this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhal and the son of Zilpah, his father's wives, and brought the father a bad report about them. Underline that, mark that down. Brought uh, a bad report to his father about them. Now Israel, now Jacob's name is Israel. We're, we're using those terms uh, interchangeably. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. He had made an ornate robe for him, or a robe of many colors we'll see in some translations. When his brothers saw that his father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Without going into full detail, if you were here last week, we did go through the details of the two different dreams that Joseph decides to tell his brothers all about these dreams. <clears throat> and in these dreams, all of these sheaves, then out in the field, and these, the wheat and all the sheaves are bowing down to his sheaf. For all of the moon and the stars are all bowing down to him, Joseph. And his brothers heard these stories, and they envied him and hated him all the more. He was demonstrating being truly loved by his father. His father had put him on this pedestal. His father wanted the best for him, had given him all of the best things that he had to offer him. And his brothers envied that 
tremendously. At the end of verse 11, we see the word jealousy. This jealous spirit was just overtaking them. They were turning green with envy. Well, as you may know, the story continues from there. So here's your second fill-in for you this morning is turning red in the face. Turning red in the face, meaning that their anger is about to boil over into action. Verse 12, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around the field and asked him, what are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They moved on from here a while ago, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go on to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them tending near Dothan. So Joseph's brothers had to do the hard and uncomfortable work of tending to the sheep, tending to the flock, the herds, thousands and thousands of animals that these men are taking care of. So while Joseph is sitting at home in the lap of luxury, they are out working and tending to the flocks. They are living in tents. They are living as nomads, and he is living in his own palace, if you will. This place, Shechem, that they went to, this is where uh, Jacob or Israel owned some land there in Shechem, but we, we learned that this is a really difficult place for them to return to because in Shechem, this was the place there in chapter 34, Genesis chapter 34, this is the place where their sister Dinah was raped there in Shechem. And if you read through that passage before, that they find out about what happened to their sister and they go in and they kill brutally all of the men of that area. And they pillage, they take all of the stuff back out. And so when Joseph is being sent by his father to check on his brothers, he's being sent to Shechem. And he's asking him this question. He says, go and see, verse 14, if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring the word back to me. He knows that this is a bad place for his brothers to be returning to. He knows that this is a, a place where bad things have happened, where his brothers have not behaved properly. They had killed all of the men there. So as he sends him out, uh, some of your translations say, please go see if it is well with your brothers. Please. He's asking him. He is begging him. He is, he is imploring him. He doesn't have the authority even over his son Joseph. He has set him so high up there, at least in his local context, that he has to ask him to do so. And so he goes to Shechem. He looks for them in Shechem. He says, uh, it's very well. I will go do that if that would please you. It's perhaps a 10 to 15 mile walk further uh, west uh, to Dotham. Uh, than Shechem. Shechem was probably between 25 and 30 miles away where he went first and then had to go an additional 10. He found them in Dotham. It took some persistence, but Joseph found his brothers working there. And so later in Israel's history, if you've seen this term Dotham before, uh, I just read this in my daily devotions uh, this week as I'm reading through the Bible this year. Uh, this is also where Elisha was staying in, in Dotham when uh, the, the thousands of uh, the, the enemy's uh, armies, the in, angelic armies surrounded them to protect Elisha. Uh, thousands and thousands of them there in Dothan, but that's much later on. 
Verse 18 says, they saw him in a distance before he reached them, and they plotted to kill him. They saw him in a distance before he reached them, and they plotted to kill him. What started as an envious spirit, green with envy, starts to turn into brutal hatred, turning red in the face. To the point where now they are plotting to kill him. This is shocking. We should not just overlook this because we've read this passage before. This is shocking. They're literally sitting there as their brother comes in. The brother who they are jealous of. They are envious of. They hate this brother. This brother is coming in while they are working out in the field. <coughs> he is coming in with his, his robe, his, his coat of many colors, and his clipboard. He is ready to take down all the things that they are doing wrong or all the things that they have made misjudgments on or he's, anything that they are doing with the flock that he does not like, he is going to report them and turn them in. And they are so sick and tired of this guy that they are plotting to kill their own brother. They were not conspiring to mock him or tease him or give him an Indian burn. You know what an Indian burn is? When you, it's an older brother to a younger brother thing or I had older cousins because I was the old. They grab your arm and they twist it back and forth until your arm turns red. This was not what they were conspiring to do. They were plotting to kill their brother. You see, the sin was in their heart before they ever acted out on it. Our sin begins in our heart. This was something that had been building up. This envy, this jealousy, this hatred in their heart was now going to show itself and come out. And so when we talk about a life being transformed, we are not talking about transforming behaviors. God has to work on the condition of your heart and mine. The sin was in their heart before it was ever acted out. And when they see their brother coming over the hill in that robe, that robe that they hate everything about, they hate what it represents, they hate who is in it, they hate what he is going to do, what he's going to say, the notes that he's going to take and take back to their father, they hate everything about it. And in their heart, they are plotting to kill him. Verse 19. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of those cisterns. And they say a ferocious animal devoured him. And we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Joseph's brothers mock him as a dreamer. If you remember from last week, we talk about uh, the foolishness or maybe the naivety of him to be able to share this dream with his brothers, a God-given dream. Maybe that was a little bit foolish for him to share it with his brothers, and now he's been named the dreamer. And so this dreamer, they are going to kill and pretend that a ferocious animal has devoured them. Their plan to kill Joseph is now not just an idea, a concept. Now they have premeditated murder on the mind. They were serious about what they were plotting. They had figured out the details. They had planned the excuse that they would make after the fact. They had set things aside in a way that they would be able to do this. And they thought that they would get away scot-free, knowing all well what it would do to their very own father. They continued to scheme and to plan. And they say, we will see what becomes of this man's dreams. 
See, they didn't oppose Joseph's plans, hopes, and dreams for the future. They opposed it because that dream meant something about them. That that dream was a revelation from God and they wanted nothing of it. They wanted to see if they could defeat God's plan, God's sovereignty, God's will. And they said, we'll see what becomes of his dreams. You see, we can look at this passage, and as you study this passage, I can make the mistake of saying, let's see what God's dream is for your life. Dream whatever you think it is and pursue that, because we see Joseph doing that. But that is foolishness, because what you'll see here is Joseph, at this moment right now that we're looking at right here in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph in his mind is fulfilling his greatest dream for his life. He is walking out to all of his brothers. All of his brothers have to listen to what he has to say. He is wearing the robe that would put him at the seat of authority. He is in control of the situation. He can mark down on that sheet of paper, on on that tablet. He can bring it back to his father, and they will have to do whatever he says. His dream in his mind is complete. But Joseph never dreamed of being a slave. Joseph never dreamed of falsely being accused of rape. Joseph never dreamed of being forgotten and left in Egypt. And Joseph never dreamed of being the second most powerful man in Egypt. Joseph never dreamed of saving the known world from a famine. Joseph never dreamed of any of those things. That was God's plan and God's dream for Joseph. You see, our focus on our dreams can be dangerous. I believe that God has uh, encouraged us to have goals and set goals and look at what he has for us in the future. Uh, But the big thing, the big point that we have to remember that this is God's plan for your life and for mine. Oftentimes, if you look at uh, your life, if you are writing a story and you start at the beginning and you look at the end and you're writing your own story of your life or you are, uh, you are shooting the movie of your life and at some point in your life you say, you know what, this is a decent story, but I need another person to write into the story. And so you invite Jesus to be in the story as a co-star, if you will, and make the way through and that will make the rest of the story better. The mistake there is, is that that movie as it plays out is a mistake. As you play that movie forward, the movie where you are still the hero of the story and you've got the sidekick named Jesus, you are mistaken. You've got the whole thing backwards because this is not your story. This is God's story played out in your life and in mine. You see, what God said about Joseph is true. And it would come to pass. What God said about Jesus is true, and it would, and it will come to pass. But look how it comes to pass. Verse 21. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. Reuben was not the most upstanding citizen. If you've looked back in the previous chapters, and I encourage you to do so this week, Reuben had already made some tremendous mistakes there, uh, sleeping with one of Jacob's concubines and, and creating this big mess. But in the middle of all of this, somewhere 
God allows Reuben to be the voice of reason. Our lives are never a waste. Our sin never erases us from being useful to a holy God. He can work through in and in and through each of us. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe of many colors he was wearing. And they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. In that region of the world, these cisterns were these these holes in the ground where they would store water. Oftentimes they would have to be hewn out of rock, solid rock, by a man there with a chisel and just would work and work and work. And some of them in that area, they could get up to 150,000 gallons of water that could be stored there for the dry seasons in that climate. So this was a season where the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And what happens is point three this morning, turning cold and dead inside. Turning cold and dead inside. They take their brother Joseph. They beat him. They tear his robe off of him. They throw him in a cistern where they expect that they will murder him and leave him for the while to tear apart. In verse 25, they are so callous. They are so cold and dead. They sit down to a meal together to talk through the details of what's about to happen. Verse 25, and they sit down to their meal. And as they're eating, they look up and they see a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The Ishmaelites' camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah says to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brothers and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. The heartless character of these brothers was evident. They could eat a meal with Joseph nearby in the pit. They could sit down and enjoy their food, their lamb chops. They're enjoying their meal together, putting together what would be the murder of their own brother, Joseph. Later in Genesis chapter 42, we get the recount when they meet Joseph later. They describe the conviction of sin that they ignored at that moment. And 42, verse 21, it says, We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Do not think that Joseph was so godly, so spiritual, that they threw him into the cistern, and he sat sat and waited patiently for God's will to play out. This was a terrified teenager who is screaming for help, who is begging for his life, who is going back through and saying, Simeon, Reuben, I promise I won't say anything to dad. Just let me out of here. I won't tell him what happened. I won't say a word. I'll clean myself up. It, it, just, just, just don't do what you're planning. And the screams coming out of that pit, they ignore while they sit and have this meal together. One of the commentaries I read this week says this, a physicist could compute the exact time required for his cries from the pit to go 25 yards to the eardrum of his brothers. But it took 22 years for that cry to go to the eardrum of their hearts. 
25 yards away, their brother is in a pit screaming for his life. And it took 22 years before they started to think maybe they had done something wrong. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites. These are the same people, the area that they're coming from, uh, the people who were coming there, the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned from the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brother and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? What are we supposed to do? So they went through the plan. They got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. Now think about them pulling Joseph up out of the pit after he's been crying, screaming, begging for his life. As they pull him out the pit, they may have said some things that would make Joseph feel like this is the worst cruel practical joke that he could ever imagine because now they're reaching down and they're pulling him out and he's saying, listen, thanks guys, like I'm, I'm sorry, I'll be better. I promise that nothing will happen. And, and very quickly, the sound of shackles realizing that this was real. He was being sold as a slave. Perhaps he's telling his brothers how sorry he was that he learned his lesson. He wouldn't be so superior. He wouldn't act so privileged around them anymore. And for 20 shekels of silver, the price for a handicapped slave, they didn't kill Joseph, but Judah decided, you know what, we can make a little money in the process and still get what we want. How cold and dead inside do you have to be to make that decision about your brother? They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. We found this robe. Is this your son's robe, they say. He immediately recognized it and said, it's my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son for many days. All of his sons and all of his daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. We found this robe. We don't know what kind of tunic it is. We don't know. It seems to be kind of special. Do you recognize it? Are you kidding me? How vile was what was going on inside of them that they would say this. And what a heartless way to bring the news of his son's death and perpetuate this awful lie. We can only imagine the pain of this father losing the son that he has declared to everyone is his beloved and favorite son. And some strange pleasure that the brothers get out of seeing the anguish in their father. Why? Because they all come to see him in pain and pretend to console him. And they decide to live the rest of their lives. Their plan is to live the rest of their lives with this deep, dark, horrible lie and secret, and they're totally fine with that. Jacob tore his clothes apart. This is an expression of utter horror and mourning because his beloved son 
was gone. Now his grief is understandable to each of us, yes. But as we think about it, what he didn't understand is the truth about eternal life. He didn't understand that. Why? Because this is a powerful illustration of what we need to know and what we need to realize is just because he thought his son was dead, that was not the truth. His son was alive and well. And what he was experiencing was awful and it looked terrible. And everything about it seemed like this was the end, but we serve an eternal God and this was not not the end of Joseph. And in the same way, Christians, we have been set, set free. And the truth of the matter is that Jesus is in control. And the deception of it all is that we would think that it's over. That we would think that there is no hope. That we would think that God is not following through with his plan. And that's the lie that we are being told. But God continues to move the ball forward. Turning it all around. Turning it all around. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now Egypt is this thriving large kingdom for at least a thousand years before Joseph came. So the Egyptians are wealthy. They have a massive amount of natural resources. They were educated and at that point they had no real enemies at the time. Egypt is thriving and when Joseph came to Egypt, some of the pyramids had already weathered. They were already there. The Sphinx was already carved. It was already in place. All of that was in place and Joseph arrives on the scene here in Egypt. And yet looking at all of those things, God doesn't see any of those things as resources. You know what he sees when he sees Egypt? He sees Joseph. The greatest asset in Egypt is Joseph. And he's just arrived. And God is turning everything around. Turn quickly over to Matthew chapter 21. I'll move very quickly through this. Matthew chapter 21. I told you there's about a hundred different references, some authors say, where Joseph ties together with Jesus. I'm going to go very quickly through these. I want you to catch them, though. Turning green with envy in Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children were all shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna, the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Jesus just entered Jerusalem. They were throwing the palm branches before him. He was riding the donkey into Jerusalem. He is, he is proving that he is the Messiah. He is the one that we've been waiting for. They come to them. He heals them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law look at them, they turn green with envy. They are indignant. Do you hear what they are saying, they asked? Turn a couple pages over to verse 23. It should be the same page. <coughs> Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief, priest, the chief priests and the elders of the people came in and said this, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who told you you could come in here and teach and preach? And their hatred builds. Their envy grows. 
they turn red in the face and what was once something deep inside the heart starts to come out and they begin to work actively against him to the point that they turn cold and dead inside. Matthew chapter 26 verses 3, excuse me, Matthew chapter 23 verse 27. Jesus says this about him. Woe to you, you teachers and law and Pharisees. You are hypocrites. You are like what? Whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus calls them out for exactly what they are. Their hearts are vile. And just like Joseph's brothers, he knows the truth about them. Jump over to chapter 26, a couple more pages. Chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest. So he's the top dog whose name is Caiaphas. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and what? Kill him. But not during the festival, they said. Or there there might be a riot among the people. They had a plan. They were going through very methodically what they were going to do to Jesus. Chapter 27, verse 27. is where it all turns around. In the most unlikely of ways. Verse 27. The governor's soldiers took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him of his robe. Sound familiar? They twist together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him. They mocked him. Hail the king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him. They took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they mocked him, they took the robe off and put his own clothes on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Joseph, as we close today, Joseph is being led away into Egypt in slavery. As we close here to see Jesus is being led away to the cross, understand that as this is happening, it is all part of God's plan coming to fruition, that this is the turning point through the worst of circumstances. This is the turning point by which he is going to work. In Joseph's own words in Genesis chapter 50, he says this, you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good to accomplish now what is being done. Through the middle of it all, through the midst of it all, through the pain and through the hurt and through the suffering, that is when God's plan comes to fruition. Some of you, I I don't need to sugarcoat of it. When we talk about rejection and betrayal, you have lived this life. And maybe you've not been thrown into a literal pit or a dungeon, but you have lived that life where you have been put away and it's, it, it is a nasty, nasty place to be. But through that, God continues to work. God continues to move to the point that the most vile offender in this story, Judah, the one who says, let's kill him, let's go for blood. It is not Joseph's line that Jesus comes. The Messiah does not come through the family line of Joseph. The family line is the family line of Judah. God works through the most miserable of circumstances. For what reason? so that he gets the greatest glory.
So as the band comes back up this morning, as the ushers come forward, we give you an opportunity to respond this morning. We've got little white connection cards in the pew in front of you. It's a way for you to be able to say, I'm going through the pit this week. I feel like I've been thrown in the cistern and left to die. I feel like I'm at the worst point in my life. Or, hey, I'm doing pretty good. Do you trust that God has a dream, a a plan bigger than yours? When you look at your life story, you have not just inserted Jesus into it to walk along with you wherever you decide that your dream is going. Or do you understand that he has a plan and a purpose for your life and it is our responsibility to learn what that is and fall into step and trust that you meant it for evil, as Joseph said, but God intended it for good. This mission trip that our team is going on this week, we intend it for good. But it's entirely possible that there are evil things that could happen. If that were to happen, is that because God is mad at us or is that because he intended it for good? Do we understand our part of the story, our role in the story? Do we understand in it all? in through rejection, through betrayal. That is why Jesus Christ had to come to be victorious over sin, death, brutality, hatred, envy, jealousy. Dear Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you did for us on the cross and how you continue to move in our hearts and in our lives. We see in Joseph's life how faithful you really are. We don't pretend to know what people are going through this morning. But in a room of this size, there's someone going through a very difficult time. Lord, we cling and we hold on to you. Trusting that you sent your son to die for our sins on the cross because you loved us. But because sin is bad enough, that needs a rescuer. That our hearts are damaged and broken and vile enough that we need purification to our very souls. And you've provided that through your son. So Lord, while we see an illustration here in the life of Joseph, we will not be thrown off to believe we just need to try harder, have more faith, work harder, It is through your son, Jesus, that we even can step foot before the cross. We thank you for that this morning. There are some, Lord, this morning that need to take some steps. Maybe first step in meeting you for the first time, trusting that you have a plan for their life as well, no matter how bad a situation they feel like they are in. Lord, there's others here who need to trust that their responsibility is to disciple, to lead others to follow you, to be obedient to what you have called, to follow through with the dream that you've put in their hearts and they need to start moving forward on that. Lord, I pray for boldness in each of these situations, whether it's a note on a connection card that we can follow up with prayer for or a conversation to be had immediately here after the service. Lord, I pray that you would give the boldness for those to move.
We thank you for going to the cross. We thank you for dying for our sins. We thank you for defeating sin and death once and for all when you came out of that grave. And we celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.